Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ashley T. Rubin, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. We will discuss her new book, Rocking Qualitative Social Science, An Irreverent Guide to Rigorous Research, which will be published by Stanford University Press. So welcome to the show, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed reading this, um, indeed irreverent, but also quite provocative in all the right ways and helpful book, uh, which in particular I think is going to be, I believe, is going to be helpful for for legal scholars, uh, at least as much as for, for sociologists. But just by way of kind of framing the conversation in, in the book for listeners, what exactly is qualitative research as opposed to quantitative research? I mean, when we talk about this distinction, what are we distinguishing among? Yeah, great question. Um, so this is a, a question that I think a lot of people struggle with. Um, and I kind of struggle with this question, too, because the field of qualitative research is so broad. And of course, there's like mixed methods research where you can do both qualitative and quantitative. And a lot of the formal definitions that people usually give for qualitative methods are I'm just going to say wrong. <laughs> um, they're, you know, misleading or they leave things out that I think a lot of people would say, no, I think that counts as, as qualitative research um, or they kind of over overstate certain things. So they have like certain central tendencies. But if you focus on those, you kind of lose a lot. So I take a very broad definition of qualitative research. Basically, if you're not running um, a regression <laughs> or some sort of sophisticated statistics, um, and you're doing empirical research, by which I mean you're systematically looking at data, then you're doing qualitative research. So sometimes people will say you're working with text, not numbers. That's not really true. Sometimes people talk about it as a small end research project, so like case studies, or you're looking at a neighborhood or a school or something like that. Um, but that's also kind of overly limiting. So I kind of prefer this, this broad understanding. So anytime you're doing empirical research, but you're not, you know, digging into like R or Stata or SPSS or whatever. Um, then I basically think of that as, as essentially qualitative methods. Mm-hmm. So why would people be doing quantitative research as opposed to qualitative research? In other words, are there things that those kinds of statistical analyses and regressions are are really good at helping us better understand? And by extension, are there maybe some things that that it isn't so good at helping us understand. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are certain projects that you have to use quantitative methods for, and there are certain projects that you have to use qualitative methods for. Um, And of course, there are some that it would be good if you use both. Um, So I would say if you're interested in understanding the, um, like calculating what the the size of an effect is of something on something else, um, especially where you have like two variables in mind, or at least two variables in mind, that's where quantitative research tends to be better. Um, there are a whole bunch of assumptions into that go into this process of, you know, how do you how do you know that you have you've identified the, the size of that effect? Um, but that's the sort of thing that qualitative research isn't as good at. So qualitative research is great at how questions, how does this happen, or generally speaking, what's the impact of something, but not kind of quantifying it. 
Um, likewise, quantitative work just doesn't lend itself to those sorts of questions. So for example, um, I was actually a, a big old quantoid in, in grad school. I loved statistics and quantitative methods. I was our TA for our, our grad classes. Um, but my dissertation, there's no way it could have been answered with quantitative methods because I was trying to explain why this unique prison retained its its method of, of solitary confinement that was heavily criticized. And I, I thought about it. I was like, is there a way I could try to do this quantitatively? But for a number of reasons, it's just statistics wouldn't give me a satisfactory answer. And it would also like break a regression if I actually try to, to analyze data like this. Um, so there are just some things that it works really well for. Um, and so I, I kind of think of that as if you're interested in like the size of the effect, the type of quantification um, questions, um, then that works really well for quantitative methods. But if you're interested in processes or how something affects something else um, or understanding meanings or experiences and that sort of thing, qualitative methods work so much better. So to clarify, as I understand it, you work in both areas, like you've published quantitative papers. You've also published a lot of qualitative papers, which you you talk about and describe the methods in in this book. So when you're sitting down to ask which way you want to go, what kind of questions are you posing to yourself? And I guess another thing that I'm, I'm interested is, what kind of questions do you think other people are posing when they see people making that decision about what direction to go with the kind of methods that they're going to be using with a particular research project? Yeah, I would say a big determinant is what the previous literature does. So if you're, you know, if you're working in, say, sentencing disparities, a lot of that work is, is done quantitatively. And so you'd already kind of have like a gut instinct of like, okay, I'm probably going to do a quantitative project unless you're interested in doing something a little bit different and saying like, well, maybe I want to look into these processes. And so I'm going to do some interviews to ask, you know, judges how they made these decisions or prosecutors or jurors or something like that. Um, And you kind of want to peek behind the curtain. Um, So yeah, so looking at the kind of the existing literature and what's kind of the the norm um, and the types of questions. And if your question fits very well in, in those, your research question fits very well in the kind of existing questions that tends to be, say, quantitative, then I think that's kind of like a, a natural signal. Whereas if you're working in a, a field that tends to be qualitative and your, your question fits in well with that, then I think, you know, going for a qualitative approach uh, makes sense. So beyond the um, the kind of overall literature of what's come before and, um, and you know, and kind of related to that is to whom are you trying to speak? Um, unfortunately, sometimes if we're speaking to policy audiences, um, you know, quantitative work tends to do better with them. Um, I would say if you're talking to a broader audience, quantitative work tends to be more convincing, but qualitative work tends to be more evocative and emotive. And it kind of lays bare what's going on for people in a way that I think is sometimes more compelling, even if you know, numbers, numbers have so much authority, but like when you lay bare an experience, I think people really start to, it resonates with them basically. Um, so I think uh, thinking about your, pol- your, your, um, your audience, I think helps. Um, and then more generally kind of thinking about um, do the methods, um, are the methods going to allow you to answer the, the question? So, you know, if I have a bunch of, um, if I have like a rectangular data set, an Excel file, say, um, that's not going to tell me how <laughs> that, you know, it's going to point me in the right direction, maybe where I can say like, okay, I see these variables are significant, but if I want to dig deeper and say, well, how are these variables actually working? Are they doing what I think they're doing? Um, then that kind of tells me, um, you know, to move into a, a more qualitative direction. So a lot of your book is devoted 
to discussing methods or maybe even a sense like kind of best practices or, or kind of principles of doing, not just doing qualitative research, but doing qualitative research well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think the biggest kind of potential pitfalls are for especially junior researchers who are major, maybe kind of approaching a project like this for the first time and thinking about what they need to do in order to make the project succeed, but also what they need to do in order to kind of justify or explain their approach they're taking to the project in the first place. Yeah. So I would say um, some of it comes down to pretty basic uh, research design questions. So what is your case? How did you how did you choose that case? Um, and of course, sometimes there's this misunderstandings about like what are the rules for selecting a case. Um, but I think as long as you think through that process and you know like you can articulate why your case matters. Um, so you know, so if I if I go walk down Waikiki and I want to you know study um, displaced people uh, living on the streets in, in Waikiki. Um, I want to be able to talk about why Waikiki is an interesting setting, why it's a useful setting, why it helps me to answer questions that other people are going to care about, other people, you know, other academics are going to care about. Um, and then kind of secondly, um, once I have my case, kind of thinking through how I'm, I'm selecting my data, how I'm sampling my data. Um, and I use these, these terms like case selection and, and data sampling, even though we kind of associate these with sometimes like more traditional types of research. Um, and I describe this, you know, this kind of dirt bagging type of qualitative research where you kind of, you know, let loose essentially. Um, and I argue that you, you still need to think about these things. It's just you might not think about them as you're doing them, but you always want to come back to them. So thinking about, you know, what sorts of biases might you have introduced into your data collection? What sorts of limitations? What are you systematically leaving out, if anything? Um, what's kind of missing? Um, so I think kind of just thinking through the basic questions of research design are important to do. And then, of course, like, you know, when you do that is, is an open question. It depends on the type of research you're doing. The type of research I like to do, you don't really have to think about that, you know, so rigorously in the beginning. Um, but if you're doing a kind of different project where you're really interested, say, in the relationship between two variables and kind of tracing the process by which two variables affect each other or something, then you have to think about it a little bit more systematically in the beginning um, before you even collect your data. Um, so it kind of uh, depends. So I think customizing kind of your your research question or the, the project based on the research question to the particular approach, I think, is really helpful. Um, I think another really big stumbling block um, beyond research design issues is being able to frame your research um, and justify it. Uh, so especially for what I call the dirtbagging uh, social scientist, somebody like me, um, we're really just interested in topics. Uh, and this, for all I know, this might actually be true of a lot of uh, legal scholars. Um, you might have something that you're just really interested in. And, you know, it might even seem obvious why it's important to study, um, as so many things in the legal system um, are. But you still have to be able to articulate to an academic audience why these things matter and how they relate to our existing realm of knowledge. And I think that's something that's really difficult for people and so that's something I talk about in the book is kind of like, how do you actually justify your research? How do you articulate this to other academics so that it actually gets published and, you know, read and sees the light of day and maybe makes an impact if that's your goal? Um, so I'd say those are some of the biggest um, uh, kind of stumbling blocks that people have. In the book, you spend one chapter, really more than 
one chapter, talking about the sort of identification and formulation of research questions. And it, it struck me that you kind of, there's, it's almost like there's, you described two different ways of doing it. Like one is you come into the project with a research question already developed and then have to kind of maybe figure out what your methodology is going to look like. And the alternative, you kind of come to the data and try to figure out what it's looking to tell you. Is, is that fair? And if so, how do those kind of work differently within the schema that you're proposing? Yeah. So I would say, so totally fair. Um, and I would say that basically um, the one where you kind of like come up with the research question midway through your research, that's what I'm calling this kind of dirtbagger approach. Um, so, but of course not everybody is a dirtbagger. So, um, and you, even if you're a dirtbagger, you also have to kind of know what the modal approach is or the the kind of normatively correct one that people tell you, this is how you're supposed to do it. So, you know, when I was in grad school, I was told you never select your data um, uh, or sorry, you never select your research question based on your data. It's always the other way around. But if you're an ethnographer, that it's like, you don't, <laughs> that's not how it works. Um, and I was coming in as somebody who is like trying to be a historian essentially. And that's also not really how it works either. Um, and so it, I think it's partly just understanding that there are multiple approaches to qualitative research. And for some of those approaches, you absolutely need to have your research question nailed down before you go into it, before you collect your data, um, before you talk to you know any of your research subjects or anything like that. And for other types, the kind of more dirtbagging variety, um, that's where you absolutely um, can be essentially free to go kind of hog wild in your research, um, in your data, and then kind of come up with research questions out of your data. So you might um, change your research question midway through. If, you know, you might start off with one and be like, "Oh, actually, my data don't let me answer that." But I'm I'm really interested in this data, and I have, um, you know, other other questions I could ask. Um, or you have like, additional spinoff um, research questions that come up. Or sometimes you might have insights that don't even require a research question because you're knee deep in your data. You're having these interesting insights, and you've figured out an intervention in the the literature. Um, and you can produce an article that might not even have a research question. Um, so it's a kind of looking at the, the varieties of how do you, how does your research kind of depend on a research question? When does the research question come in and how does that vary? It just kind of being open to the fact that there are these different approaches and that you don't have to do it in one particular way. One thing I found really helpful was your description of the kind of big picture workflow of putting a project together, specifically how you sort of encourage scholars to leave themselves open to the possibility of like recursivity or returning to steps rather than a kind of linear way of moving through through a project. Uh, maybe you could describe that process a little bit as you lay it out in the book and why you think that that might be a better, more productive, more helpful approach for at least some scholars to take. Sure. Yeah. So basically the, the kind of normal um, kind of modal approach um, is this idea that you, you go through essentially the scientific method. So, you know, you read the literature, you come up with the research question, you uh, nail down your research design, you go and collect your data, then you analyze your data, then you write it up and you publish. Um, the problem with that approach is um, it usually doesn't work that way. Uh, you, you know, you might try to nail down your research design, but something's going to go wrong and you have to fix it. And I, I argue that this is, you know, most true for dirtbaggers that, you know, the linear approach really doesn't work for us, but 
I mean, the truth is even for the most hardcore, you know, like normal science, um, scientific method people, like people in STEM, like this also happens for them too. Um, so kind of just building in this recognition that things aren't going to go according to plan, that you'll come up with insights. You might start collecting data inadvertently before you even have, you know, a research question and kind of just being comfortable with, you know, you can kind of go back and forth. There are other things that people are um, increasingly talking about. For example, writing is always part of the process. So thinking of it as like this final stage is pretty artificial. You, you're basically writing up, you know, parts of your research throughout. In fact, it's so much easier if you start writing your paper from the very beginning. Um, so kind of breaking away from this idea of first you do this, then you do that, then you do that, um, just I think is really helpful. Likewise for um, data collection, data analysis, the way I describe data um, collection, the way I think a lot of people do data collection is they're already starting to analyze your data. Um, so, you know, you're writing memos about your, your process of collecting your data and the kind of experiences that you're having while you're collecting that data, insights you're coming up with. And so you're already starting to do that analysis. Um, you can do it more formally. But the other thing is, if you're, you know, doing triangulation, you're working with multiple data sources or data sets, um, you're going to kind of do this back and forth quite a bit. You might analyze this data set or sorry, collect this data set, analyze it, and then go back and collect another data set and analyze that one. Um, and then you realize like, oh, I actually have to go back to the original data set and analyze that one too, because now I have this new idea. And so it's basically this very messy process that is almost difficult to explain because it, it's going in these many different directions. You're doing things in parallel and kind of going back and forth and stuff. So I think just kind of, I think, I think sometimes people think that if they don't do it according to this kind of idealized scientific method that they're doing it wrong. And certainly there are times where that might be true, but I think in the majority of cases, it's not true. And so just kind of being comfortable with, it's okay if you do this other step before the step that you thought you were supposed to start off with, um, I just think is a healthier way to approach research. Yeah. I mean, part of what you described seems like a more open approach to what any particular data you might collect might have to tell you rather than coming into the data collection with a kind of preconceived idea of, you know, how you're going to ask the data a question. It's like a much, I mean, it reminded me almost of listening to the data as it were. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, we're not, we're not so smart that we can kind of predict what's going to happen. And especially part of the, like the scientific enterprise is, you know, going out and discovering stuff. And uh, especially if, you know, we find something different than what we expect, we're probably going to have to adjust and like realize, oh, we have to collect other data to test out this hunch or, you know, I've just come up with a new hypothesis on this thing. So if I'm going to really, you know, nail it down, then I have to do that. Or you realize like, oh, there's some pretty systematic gaps that I wasn't anticipating and so now I'm going to have to come up with another data set to go in. Um, and so, so many of these things, you just, there's no way you can know ahead of time. Um, and so, yeah, so your data are going to tell you, like, <laughs> I'm missing a chunk. You have to go fill it in with something else. Or, you know, actually, you need to reread me a couple more times because, you know, you're, you're not quite getting it or something. So, yeah, absolutely. Another thing that really struck me was you have a kind of very capacious view of what can be the subject matter of of qualitative research like what kind of things can fit in that bucket and why or or rather maybe even a better question is are there kinds of things that don't fall in that bucket and why might they not oh that's tough yeah i mean i i think pretty much anything can be studied um i mean i think it, it always comes back to your research question if 
you know, if, if you want to know a specific element of something that might lend itself to a different research project. But I think, um, you know, just there's so much. So like you can do, um, I kind of break it down into in terms of types of data. So anything that's textual, um, you know, whether that's statutes or court cases or transcripts, um, newspaper articles, blogs, you know, tweets on Twitter, uh, Reddit posts, um, you know, anything that's textual can be analyzed qualitatively, but it, you know, a lot of that can also be analyzed quantitatively. Um, observations of people, uh, you know, having interactions with each other or, you know, maybe even not even interacting, but just kind of standing still or being by themselves or whatever. Um, so basically observing, um, you know, in real time or through video feed or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then like formal data collection efforts, like interviews where you, you know, do an interview or, um, some people sometimes do focus groups or those sorts of things where you're, you kind of have a group of people that you're basically doing a group interview with. That's not quite exactly true if you, you know, ask people who are specialists in focus groups, but that's kind of how I think about it. Um, and so then you have like both your, your actual interview and then the transcript or, um, sometimes video, um, of that interview. And so basically you can get, any social phenomenon through through these different modes. Um, I have a hard time thinking of something that you can't study this way, uh, just because I think there's. Um, I mean, there again, there are like there are certain questions you just can't answer, um, and then there are also sometimes ethical issues that come into play where you like can't answer. You, you, can't, you can't collect the data because of ethical um, issues. Just like you can't randomly assign people to certain criminal justice outcomes to see the effect of that because you know that would be bad. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I think those are the the major limits. Is um, yeah, just the research question and, and any ethical uh, restrictions on on collecting your data. Um, but in terms of different phenomena, um, I think basically anything could be studied this way. So you give a lot of practical advice too, uh, especially to kind of people who are coming to this kind of data collection for the first time, if you were to kind of highlight some some principles that you think are especially important to keep in mind when people are kind of getting their introduction to qualitative research and to data collection, like what should they be keeping in the front of their mind to make sure that they're going to generate the best data set, that they're going to do the best research, and that they're going to have the highest likelihood of avoiding those kinds of big catastrophic problems that make for issues down the road? Yeah. So I think the number one thing to keep in mind is understand your limitations, like be aware of your limitations and do the best you can to not only acknowledge them, but see if you can kind of adjust them or like fill them in. So if you know that you're systematically avoiding a particular group or type of, of observation or something like that, um, you know, like you're dealing with official records and you have no idea what's actually happening on the ground, um, you know, see if there's some way you can take steps in, in doing that, or you know you're talking to a biased source or something like that. You know, how do you fill in those gaps um, rather than kind of doubling down and saying my data are perfect because no, no data are perfect, no study is perfect. Um, I think that's probably the most important thing um, just across the board for any type of research, really. Um, I think another major one is just, um, I think this is not just for the researcher, but for people who are um, advising researchers and analyzing um, uh, or reviewing research is kind of recognizing that people have different goals with their research. And it might not necessarily be what you've been trained in or what you personally want to do, and just kind of being more open to that. And so from the researcher's point of view, you know, if you have an advisor who's telling you, you have to do it this way, um, 
I don't mean to say like go out and like question your advisor because you know advisors usually know almost always know like way more than you know the person they're advising. Um, but at the same time, sometimes there's a mismatch in um, the types of research people are doing. And so I think it's it's always really important to just kind of recognize, especially with like disciplinary differences, for example, um, if I'm reviewing an article for a journal that I don't usually read, and I know this person's in a different discipline, it's not really my place to say, well, you're not doing it the way my discipline would do it. You kind of have to recognize what that discipline's norms are. And so kind of paying attention to the norms of that type of research. So you see this, especially with like, somebody is doing an ethnography and then they get an, a demographer reviewing it or something like that, especially like a quantitative oriented demographer. And it's like, well, the question, you know, you're trying to get me to answer isn't quite the one that, you know, I want to do and it's not normal for my subfield or whatever. Um, so I think just kind of always recognizing people's goals and then, you know, like when you're getting criticism for something, just kind of recognizing what's behind that motivation. Like, is the person actually right? Or is this about, a difference of discipline, methods, um, epistemology, like those sorts of, of things. Um, I think that's uh, kind of another important um, thing. Um, a third one I would say is just always be systematic and in general, write, um, write up like everything from the moment you start um, to the, you know, the moment you end and maybe even after that. Um, so I keep a blog, a private blog. Um, I use Blogger uh, where anytime I'm coming up with like a, a question or a problem or I'm starting a new data project uh, or I mean a research project and I'm collecting the data, I keep notes about um, how I'm collecting that data, uh, what sort of choices I made. Um, and then like as I come up with insights, I keep recording those. So I just think writing everything down saves so much later because like then if you think like oh no I can't remember like what search terms I use to collect this or you know like why why am I you know why can't I replicate this or something um those sorts of, of things I think just writing things down is is really helpful um and it's also really good practice for kind of being a good writer because the more you write the easier it is and the less scary it is so yeah I think those are probably um the three biggest ones I mean they, they exist at a bunch of different levels but I would say those are probably the three most important ones that I would say in at least some circles, there's some resistance to, or at least what's resistance to perceived to be qualitative research. Like, how would you describe the most kind of common objections or criticisms of qualitative projects that people make? And what do you think they're missing? Yeah, great question. Um, so some of the ones that, that always pop up are things like, oh, but this isn't generalizable because you're only doing a case study um, or your sample size isn't big enough um, and those sorts of things. Um, so I think deep down, a lot of these are just a mismatch between different types of methods and just kind of failing to understand like this is this type of method. It has this set of rules um, and not that set of rules. So in a lot of cases, um, it's either quantitative thinking. Uh, it's not necessarily even quantitative scholars because there's a lot of um, there are a lot of qualitative scholars who kind of look to quantitative rules and apply those to qualitative methods. And so if you're doing a particular type of qualitative research, um, those rules just do not apply and they'll actually lead to bad research. Um, and sometimes it's also just kind of missing like, you know, the, the details of what is qualitative research. So, um, you know, saying that your sample size isn't big enough is kind of annoying when you're dealing with like thousands of observations, um, you know, like you have boxes and boxes of data if you're dealing with text or something um, or like, you know, transcripts and um, field notes and things like that. 
So you actually have so much data. So to say that your your sample size isn't big enough is is kind of you know insulting because it's like actually I have more data than you do. Like yours fits on Excel spreadsheets, like mine doesn't. Um, so I think part of it is just kind of mis misunderstanding like what counts as data and what are its uses. Um, so like, yeah, if I were to try to run a regression on, you know, one thing that wouldn't, you know, one observation that wouldn't work, but my one observation is actually composed of thousands of, of data points. Um, so yeah, so a lot of it comes down to that. Or another one is this generalizability thing of kind of related to the small sample size, you're only looking at this, you know, this one neighborhood, this one prison, whatever. Um, and I think people don't understand that the kind of enterprise of, of a lot of qualitative projects isn't to empirically generalize. Like, I'm not trying to say this particular prison is like others. Um, in my, my kind of empirical book, my prison uh, is not generalizable. Like, that's the whole point of it. Um, but it's still useful for people learning about their early prisons because it actually has other meanings. So it doesn't have to be representative for that to be um, important. So and that's because I think um, qualitative research tends to work more at a conceptual level than um, like there's a lot of empirical stuff, but we're not coming up with like, well, there are 25 percent of my prisoners who are this demographic and 30 percent who are that demographic like that for like in a lot of ways doesn't matter. Like there are some questions where that would. But for a lot of for for the question that I'm interested in, it, it doesn't um, because I'm interested in kind of understanding these broader kind of social um, questions. So, for example, um, if we're looking at studies of, of resistance or something like that, like I could be studying 19th century Pennsylvania and somebody else can be studying, um, you know, people in um, in the Holocaust and somebody else can be looking at um, Bedouin women and somebody else can be looking at um, uh, like prisoners in, in Denmark or something like that. Um, and each uh, setting is going to have different types of resistance, different motivations for resistance. But we can all still study resistance and general, or, sorry, not generalize, um, construct concepts about resistance and theories about resistance that can still apply to all of these settings, even though they're very different. And even though we're all just doing case studies, you know, just in quotes. Um, so even though the empirical part isn't generalizable, because, you know, what happens in the 19th century is not going to be something that you see today necessarily, although there are actually some similarities. Um, and likewise, what we see between Bedouin women and people in the Holocaust are also going to be different. Um, but the kind of larger processes that we're looking at, those social processes, um, that's going to be generalizable. Um, and so that's the type of generalizability that we we care most about. Yeah, one thing I really liked in the book was the way you you talk about Almost as if it's like the the goal is not to have any particular study produce the final be all like definitive answer to any particular question, but to provide like relevant, helpful information that intersects with other studies and can show commonalities that can tell us things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to identify. Yeah, thank you. That's a great point. Um I think one of the things that people, um, and I think the public um, is kind of part of this and, and politicians and policymakers as well, um, people forget that a single study isn't the be all and end all of, of our knowledge. It's just one study. It has limitations. Um, it builds on other studies and other studies are going to build on it. And really, we have to look at the, the body of knowledge and evaluate them kind of together with their kind of group limitations um, and their their overlaps and things. And this isn't just true of qualitative research, it's true of all research. 
So um, my husband's an astrophysicist, for example, and he studies a particular type of astrophysics. Um, and he's interested in a question that other scholars are also interested in, but they use different methods. And at the end of the day, their answers overlap. They're not identical, but they overlap. And so in the same way that, you know, any one of his studies is not going to be the be on end all, nor is, you know, these other colleagues are going to are going to produce like the definitive answer, but taking them together kind of helps us to understand like, okay, this is the central tendency. This is, this is where we were most confident that the answer is. And instead we get, you know, uh, press releases saying, you know, new study shows that 30% of whatever is this, or, you know, here's how you, um, that like save heart, uh, heart health or something, you know, like chocolate is good for you. Coffee is good for you. And it's like, okay, one study showed us that, but like, show me the the collection of studies that, that does that. Um, and I think we just put too much stress on individual studies, which then uh, translates into stress on individual researchers who think, um, who either think that they have to have it like perfect and other people think they have it, have to have it perfect. And that just creates a lot of stress and misinformation um, that I think is not good for anyone and it's definitely not good for science. Well, so Ashley, in, in closing, in your book, you use as a kind of conceptual frame a whole range of different terms and concepts that you draw from, from climbing. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you personally found climbing a kind of helpful analogy for the research project and sort of what you think it illuminates about what we're doing, or at least what we're trying to do when we do research, particularly research of the kind you describe in the book. Sure thing. Um so yeah, so I um, I started climbing um, at an indoor gym um, in Toronto when I was living in Canada. Um, I think probably my second year when I was living there. Um, and I just after like my first day of going climbing, um, and I was either I think I was walking home and I just had this insight. I was like, oh my god, this is like a perfect analogy for. Um, basically for writing. So it actually started off as, as a kind of writing project or, you know, a project about writing. Um, and as I kept kind of thinking about it, I thought like, oh, there's another metaphor here. Um, and so I just kind of kept coming up with these and I would sometimes tweet about them or just like write them down in my research blog. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I, I realized like climbing has a whole host of, of things. Some of them are just kind of obvious, like um, climbers refer to particular climbs as a project. So like you, you might be projecting a, a particular climb, you're kind of working on it, you're trying to, you know, figure out how to do it. Because a lot of climbing, you don't just like go up and climb it, you, you fail a lot. <laughs> um, and so it's, a, it's this process that goes into it. And so I realized like, oh, like, that's, a, you know, that, that's like research or, um, you know, sometimes you, you start climbing, and then you have to like down climb a little bit, or you, you know, fall off, and you have to do it again, or you realize the route that you wanted to take isn't the route, you know, like the research design you made actually isn't the research design you're going to end up doing. And so there are just so many analogies where I was like, oh, wow, this is this is super rich. Um, and I think um, it's not just climbing. Like I, I prefer climbing. I got really into it. Um, I mean, really, I'm still like a total noob, but um, like I, I'm just fascinated by the field of, of rock climbing and its history and all that. Um, but I, I think you could use basically any sport. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe climbing is, is better. It is a really diverse sport. It goes everything from like mountaineering to gym climbing and bouldering and things like that. Um, but I think a lot of, um, sports and other types of artistic endeavors, um, just have a lot of, uh, metaphors. So, um, I always say if people don't like the rock climbing metaphor, you know, like feel free to insert your own. Um, but at the, the kind of biggest one, um, that becomes the, the major framework is this idea of dirt bagging. 
Um, and that comes from uh, a, a term of endearment for um, rock climbers in like the 1960s or so. Um, although people continue to use the phrase, although it's kind of um, it's kind of less less common now as as climbing becomes more mainstream. But the idea is um, there's this uh, these like scruffy climbers. They were called dirt bags. They were um, to some extent essentially homeless people living in um, like Yosemite National Park in California, um, and they were just spending their entire day climbing. They usually weren't employed. Um, they would sometimes steal from the local cafeteria. Um, these were like not model citizens, especially in like, you know, 1950s, 1960s, beaver cleaver, uh, you know, very button up uh, kind of timeline. Um, and they were seen as these social deviants. And I really liked this, this kind of identity because I always felt so deviant doing the type of research that I was doing because I was always breaking the rules that people had told me, you know, you have to do it this way, you have to do it that way. And I always thought like, what's wrong with me that I'm, you know, doing it wrong. Um, and so I liked this kind of idea of like, okay, I'm a dirtbag researcher, I'm a dirtbagger. Um, and so I, I kind of use that because um, I tried to come up with other ones because, you know, some people have problems with the term dirtbag and it has various connotations. And I tried really hard to come up with any other label for it. Um, but the type of, of qualitative research that I'm talking about, it's just so broad and diverse in terms of the different types of it, that nothing, no label that I could think of would, would be adequate and it would always leave something out. And so I, I preferred this idea, um, which is also kind of an homage, um, I should mention to, uh, Crystal Luker's salsa dancing through the social, um, sciences where she uses salsa dancing and she refers to her salsa dancing social scientists. So I figured, you know, she does it, um, in a totally legit book. Um, then I should be able to talk about my dirtbagging social scientists um, and my dirtbag methods. Uh, so that's kind of the, um, yeah, that's the, that's the backstory. <laughs> well, I, I personally found it very helpful. I really enjoyed the book and I really appreciate you taking the time to share some of the ideas from it with listeners today, but there's just so much more in there. And for anyone who's embarking on a what might end up being a qualitative social science research project like you describe and kind of advise on in your book, uh, I couldn't, uh, I, I would recommend your book very highly to them. Thank you so much. I knew that when I climbed that mountain, I'd find. I'd swim the deepest river. If I knew that when I swam that river, I pray to get to 
Honey child, I'd climb the highest mountain. That is, if I knew when I got to the top that I'd find you sitting there. I'd even swim the deepest river if I knew that when I swam that river you'd be waiting on the other side. You see, without you, honey, my life don't mean nothing to me. And no matter where you are, honey child, that's just where I want to be. I dream to get to heaven Cause I know that if I got to heaven I 